0: And that's, that's interesting that you say that because I remember of my physical exam way, way, way back that we mainly practiced on the D word and then you could get the D or a cat or whatever and you could even get a pigeon. And the pigeon was like one hour, here is a pigeon, do all these things and then you would never see the pigeon again. Mm-hmm. Sorry
1: for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is
2: Dr. Susan Little
0: and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and it was once again a deer in the headlight show. Yeah. Uh, this is the Per podcast and I'm so happy you. that you're here.
2: I what? didn't expect you to let me start. I wasn't ready.
0: No you weren't but that's okay that's okay we have a great guest and and you know I'm always getting really excited when cast reappear and we have a guest that was on the Per podcast very successfully. He passed both tests easily, and now he's back and we're very excited. The other reason I'm excited is because I am in the minority here. I'm a little Dutchman living in the US and I am overpowered by two amazing Canadians.
2: Yay! Yeah, yeah. Does that mean it's a ratio of two Canadians to a Dutch person?
0: Uh, For now it is, although you do have to realize that all the tulips that are in Canada came from Holland.
2: Not Well, probably. But every year, Holland still sends tulips to Ottawa as a gift. Yes. Yes. Really? Yes, because, and Yola probably knows this better than me, during the Second World War, did we not provide a refuge for the Queen? And the next, was a King or Queen, was born actually in Canada?
0: Uh, So one of the princesses was born in Canada and I think it's a princess because the queen went to England and she was in hiding there but one of the the princess Juliana was the one that and that's why we send over tulips every time so uh, uh, you know normally tulips stay in the ground and then they come back but in Canada for some reason the weather is so awful that they after one time they need to be replenished.
2: Well, it depends on where you are in Canada, but yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ottawa for sure. That's a Yeah, problem. Ottawa for
2: sure. And if it's not that, then the squirrels eat them. That's our other big problem. So,
0: right. We haven't even introduced our guest at I know.
2: Like five That's minutes true. further. So,
0: Dr. Susan, can you introduce our wonderful guest?
2: I am very happy to introduce our wonderful guest. So, one of our few repeat appearances um, is Dr. Sir, Serge Chaloub. Thank you so much, Serge, for agreeing to join us again. Um, we're we're thrilled. And plus, it's the only way we get to see people these days is to invite them on our podcast and do a Zoom. <laughs> so,
3: That's exactly no, it. I was,
2: was, was waving,
0: but uh, this yeah. is a podcast search, too, so they can't see you. So you do have to speak.
3: You got it. Absolutely. Well, I'm very honored to be back. I, I'm so happy to see you too, uh, despite not seeing you in person. Uh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: And search uh, and explain what you have in your background, because it looks beautiful.
3: Oh, so this is our uh, foothills campus of the University of Calgary. Uh, the uh, Faculty of Veterinary Medicine is split between this campus, which is the medical campus, uh, with the main U of C uh, campus being just a couple blocks away. And that is truly the view we have from there. Um, so it's, uh, and quite, quite appropriate right now, we do have snow in the mountains, um, and probably some snow that's going to land everywhere tomorrow. Mm. Um, so yeah just a a view of our uh, campus and city. I do see some leaves on the
0: green on the trees they might have disappeared I think.
3: Very much so (laughs) yeah very very much so yeah it's uh, two degrees today Um, we've had some nice weather it's been 15 16 degrees but Mm -hmm. uh, two three degrees for the next few days. We're talking centigrades. I hope. Absolutely Okay. yeah 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 how's the weather uh, down in uh, where you are?
0: so uh for me i'm not talking about Ottawa because i'm in beautiful kansas and i'm going to switch switch over to um fahrenheit it's 75 degrees fahrenheit which i will look up right now how much that is in centigrades. while dr susan tells that it is like minus 100 fahrenheit in celsius what 22
2: degrees fahrenheit is equal to 22.22 degrees celsius 22.22. 22.22.
0: Yes so it is 22.223 uh, <laughs> degrees centigrade here in beautiful Kansas.
2: That's, that's warm but you know for Canadians anything above zero Celsius is perfectly acceptable.
3: Very much so very <laughs> much so and I hear it's like 16 or 17 in Ottawa today Celsius. Yeah
2: I heard yeah I'm down in I've been in Nova Scotia for a lot of the fall um, and it's 10ish, 10, 12ish, but yeah, it was quite warm in uh, in Ottawa. It's a it's a time of time of year I think when weather fluctuates a lot. Right. So. Yeah.
3: Yeah. For yeah. sure. For sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And,
0: and we have a very special topic uh, today, Doctor yeah. Susan.
2: We do. Just just before we started recording, I was asking uh, Serge because we're recording in the afternoon if he was home from work yet, or was he talking to us from work? And he reminded me that we all work from home these days, so. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. i guess it depends on whether he's walked out of the spare bedroom come uh home office yet or not you know have you walked down the hall yet that, so you've left work it's the way it yep. is
3: absolutely or or change from the uh top that is non-pajama but the pajama bottoms
2: <laughs> Right.
3: I'm sure, we all have those stories to yes. fully you know putting clothes that uh, might be more acceptable to go outdoors and non-pajama bottoms
2: yeah so that's why we wanted that's one of the reasons we wanted to to talk to, um, to Serge today. Um, so the bigger topic of, of just what veterinary student education is like today, because you know Yola and I graduated a long time ago and things hopefully change for the better over time. And then there's the layered uh, pressures and difficulties of the pandemic. So I'm really keen to hear how University of Calgary is coping with that, because that's a massive challenge.
3: For sure. And there's been, there's certainly been a lot of changes and we've uh, all had to rumble through them. I think rumble is a, a good word to describe it and uh, both ourselves, the students and leadership. It's uh, It's been an interesting time.
2: So how do you teach vets? Because a lot of what's taught, especially in the later years, is really hands-on, right? You know, if you're doing lectures, you you conceivably can do them from anywhere, but I think the big question everybody would have is like, how do you teach hands-on skills from home?
3: And that's a great question. So one of the first things we did when looking at our curriculum, we, we split up how we would teach um, all the different portions. When we talk about the clinical skills, the laboratory portion, um, there's no doubt we all agreed this needs to continue. Mm-hmm. And um, UCBM has a very strong clinical skills curriculum from year one to three so what we decided to do in consultation with the university and the faculty, we've split the students up into smaller cohorts and we have continued in-person laboratory teaching as long as the students stay within their cohorts all year. And um, we, that also means that there's reduced numbers of uh, students as well as faculty and technicians and assistants per lab. So with that, what we've done is it's actually been somewhat beneficial We've taken these three hour labs and we've condensed them into two hours. We give them three times in a day instead of twice. And we've actually, in some ways, reduced the number of labs that we've given. We've, in, in some ways, it was almost therapeutic. We've kind of cleaned up some of the labs. We took off some of the, you know, trimmed a little bit of the fat off them and, and um, others that might have been maybe not necessarily, you know, core competencies that maybe we've added. So it, it's been very interesting to see. And and that's been one of our biggest successes, um, is teaching the students in two-hour segments. And we've also included um, assessments. So during labs now, we have a a mini-assessment. It could be a very short multiple um, choice. um, Show me how you do this, or tell me how you do this. And so it's actually brought in some assessment into these two-hour labs. The students are coming in more prepared. We're coming in more prepared, because I'm all of a sudden, I'm like, geez, I have to assess the students, not just give the lab. And everyone seems to really be enjoying this portion. So for the lab person portion, we have not um, deviated from in-person because you're correct, that's important. And uh, But we have created also more teaching videos, more, more precise lab manuals, very much boom, boom, boom. Here are the steps, very clear objectives. So that, yeah, that's been very beneficial, I would say. Almost the, the pandemic has brought about this, this paradigm shift almost that I think we're gonna keep.
0: So it sounds like that changes needed to be done, but you know, for whatever reason were delayed and because of the virus or the pandemic, suddenly things happened much faster. It's like a curriculum change that was forced by the outside instead of the inside.
3: Correct, Julie, really. that's exactly right. In some ways, I don't think we knew we needed this change until we were forced to do it. And we've all recognized that we enjoy the shorter timeframe Uh, we enjoy the assessments we've all enjoyed kind of cleaning up or at least being forced to look objectively do we need this is this a core competency that we want our year one DVM graduate to have or was this maybe a little extra that sure if we have the time again maybe we'll look into it you know as an elective but so you're absolutely correct It, it has forced us to kind of review something and the outcome so far has been very positive on that front. And I have a question. Oh, go ahead first. Uh, I
2: was just going to say it's good to 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 hear that there are some silver linings. And, and you know, I think uh, we've seen that in many different areas. You know, I've seen it to some degree in what I do with my own practices. And I'm sure Yola's seen some things like that, that, you know, you've been forced to innovate or forced to change and, and you realize this is a keeper.
3: Yep, absolutely. I think that's a good way to put it. so I have a question then
0: for you, because we know that the cat in general doesn't have as much visibility as maybe other species uh, within the curriculum and often when we talk about the cat it is like we talk a lot about the D word and then at the end, the last five 10 minutes oh yeah and this is about the cat, so how do you guarantee that those kind of things. That normally already do not get as much attention. And the cat might be one of them, but it might be, you know, uh, reptiles or amphibians or whatever it is that you need to learn to get the necessary attention and are not kind of shaved off
3: because people feel that they're less important. No, and that's a great question. For us, um, cats and dogs are relatively equal in terms of the clinical skills we want to teach. Um, and I teach first year physical exam. So I'm in charge of the full first year physical exam for cats and dogs. And there's no doubt, you know, I think people recognize, first of all, cats are aliens from outer space. They're different. And because of that, um, you know, they're, it's not going to be okay. Let's go through the standard physical exam in a dog from step one. I mean, there's, there's other considerations, you know, there's, there, there's behavior, there's, you know, manipulations. There's, and so on the contrary, what it's, it's actually done for us is, um, make it ultra focused and c- almost more clear. And so when we did the first year physical exam lab a few weeks ago, um, we did the dog portion and then immediately did the cat person, uh, the the portion. And um, I, I found it much more clean and more objective and there was no cutting um, of of that time. Mm. Um, so we, we were pretty lucky for that. And that's, that's interesting that you say that because I remember of my physical
0: exam way, way, way back that we mainly practiced on the D word, and then you could get the D or a cat or whatever, and you could even get a pigeon. And the pigeon was like one hour, here is a pigeon, do all these things, and then you would never see the pigeon again. And so if you were one of those people that were lucky enough to get the D, it was easy because you knew that because you had practiced so much, but those poor souls that got that pigeon, I mean, that sucks. And so it's really difficult. And and we know that cats are not always the best, uh, you know, animals to practice on. And, and, and right. you know, I remember that they said, if you have a cat at home, please practice on your home cat. We <laughs> didn't. So I, you know, we only had the Ds there. So I couldn't practice on any cats and we definitely didn't have pigeons. So I always felt really nervous when I came into the, you know, exam room and you had to do something in in one of those species that you're not that comfortable with. So how do you fix that problem?
3: Well, and it's exactly what you said in recognizing that cats aren't the Ds. um, I think if anything, it's even more important to make sure that the students have, you know, Mm -hmm. exposure on a regular basis. So, you know, the physical exam lab is an absolutely mandatory lab. And what we've done is that every year they have a review physical exam lab plus their physical exam labs build on each other. And there's always a dog and a cat portion to the lab. So for small animals, it's always, always dogging cats. And and like you said, it's important to highlight that cats are not dogs and, you know, and vice versa, obviously. But, you know, so the one thing we've noticed, you know, is that there's there are a lot of students who are scared of cats. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: and and a lot of that fear comes from just not having exposure um, or the knowledge or the skills So it is something that we really, really emphasize right from year one um, and in other labs as well. So I teach the second year cardiology lab. And again, it's the same thing. You know, a cat is not a dog and we have a significant portion of the time just dedicated to um, cat auscultation, cat cardiovascular, physical exam, et cetera. So give us the best
0: way to listen to a cat's heart because a lot of people are struggling with this as you know, you give this part of the education, so you must be an expert in it. Right. Uh, normally, cat heart rates are so high; uh, people have trouble with it. I can't imagine students have that, but you know, I know a lot of vets have too. So,
3: what is the tip, the golden tip? I tell people to drink five cups of caffeine first, so that your brain is going as fast as the heart rate, and then go. Uh, <laughs> I think you know one of the big things is you know. First of all students have to get comfortable listening to heart so there's no doubt it's easier on a dog and then um so in first year you know if, if they can listen to lub dub dub lub dub 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 and get comfortable with that that's to me a starting point i get them to um first of all recognize again with with cats you place your you know your stethoscope right at the sternum level you're, you're not going to do pam like you do in a dog and so you know so i get them to go ahead and put their stethoscope on there and either tap with their hand, tap with their foot, tap with their head, whatever they need to, but first get comfortable to the lub-dub, love, love dub love dub and what that means, you know, uh, between the lub and the dub, and then just start practicing counting. A lub-dub is a one, a lub-dub is a two, a lub-dub is a three. And um, yeah, so it's, there's no doubt it's a challenge, but for me, it's it's all about some kind of tapping or rhythm that mm. you can, you know, instill in yourself and then follow along with, uh, with the cats.
2: That's a, that's a really good tip, and, and it reminds me of a of a tip that I wish I had heard or, or even thought of, because it's obvious, um, myself earlier in my career, and that's when you're looking at um, a cat or another species that's dyspneic and you're trying to decide what their respiratory pattern is. It can be challenging. So, you know, I've heard people um, say, breathe along with the animal, right? Like, get yourself in sync and breathe with the animal, and then it'll become... Uh, should become clearer to you what that breathing pattern is. And I thought like, that's genius. Why didn't I think of that? So,
3: yeah, no, and, and, and exactly. And I, and I, and i picked it up from others for sure. The other thing is, you know, a cat again is not a dog and, you know, when a dog can, you can stay pretty still with that dog and listen to the heart. You know, that cat's going to move a lot most of the time. So I teach students to move with the cat as well, you know, and, and I think that's an important skill when it comes to cats, right. To, to be able to, you know, examine what the cat shows you, not not necessarily what you want to examine right then and there. And and so it's the same thing with the heart um, to just move along with that cat and keep that rhythm going and and get that heart rate, you know, and, and hear for gallops, murmurs, and go from there.
0: And it's funny because you also don't have to listen a minute long to the heart to get the number of beats per minute. You can also listen like 10 seconds, and do time six and 15 right. seconds times four a lot of people forget that so and then you can take smaller parts and see you know this these 10 seconds and those 10 seconds is kind of the same so that's where the heart rate that it is so yeah,
3: absolutely yeah and i always make sure students also appreciate that the heart rate they get makes sense for the patient hmm. um in other words if they get a heart rate of 100 in a cat you know maybe that and the cat is totally bright and alert it's a two-year-old cat that has no issues you know to you know, to maybe go back and recount and think about that. So, you know, and, and vice versa, if you get a heart rate of 400, well, you know, maybe there was some double counting there. But yeah, it's, there's no doubt cats are challenging, which is a big reason why we promote, um, you know, their examination in, in, our, um, in our curriculum.
2: I just wanted to circle back to the changes that you were talking about, especially with the clinical skills lab how much time did you have to prepare that? Like I'm curious sort of when during the summer did the university start to realize it's gonna be different in the fall, right? Because certainly for the, the school teachers, at least I can speak for Ontario, they had not nowhere near enough time to prepare, right? And it might sound simple that you can just put your, you know, make your lectures on demand or record them or, but that's not simple and you had to redesign labs.
3: Absolutely. Our, I would say that our clinical skills um, coordinators and chair were, were very proactive because they knew that, you know, they, they have to coordinate a lot of faculty, a lot of technicians, a lot of assistants, animals. And so they, they were pretty much from the beginning of the summer. Like I remember in June, we, May, June, we were already talking about it. And it's still, you know, that the shock value for the instructor was still there, despite me knowing my lab was going down to two hours um, knowing that I'd have to revamp my lab manual, how I deliver the lab, create a new teaching video um, or videos, and you know, and and so the the grind was still there, the rumble was still there, but no, they they were way ahead of the game in in making those decisions for clinical skills. It was really nice.
2: Yeah, it's really important the, the prep time for such a sea change.
3: For sure, absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, and how are the
0: students doing at the moment? Because I, if I was a student, I probably would be pretty irritated by this whole, you know, sitting at home and doing most of my stuff uh, behind the computer while, you know, especially for, I, I, I can imagine that, especially the fourth year students that, I mean, you are so ready to go into the clinics and be there 100%. I know in the other years, you're there too, but you're still like the little peon students. Now you're the big really would go for it, students. And, and that part is taken away at, uh, for a big part.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, yesterday, we had an OSCE, which is our, our lab exams. And uh, so we saw the first years. And, and some of the first years were somewhat excited to be there because they, they see their classmates sometimes, sometimes for the first time. And, and so our, you know, our, our first years have not all been in a single room at once ever. They, they don't know what, you know, quote unquote veterinary school or campus is all about or, you know, and and for a lot of them, they've never really seen us without a mask either. And I've never seen them without a mask. So it's interesting because all I all I recognize from them is their names, you know, from class lists and grading and, and you know, them with a mask and same with me. So the students, I think it depends year per year. The first years in talking to them yesterday during the OSCE, it's, it's been tough because they know you know they they're learning everything online except for the clinical skills and this is the new normal for them Um, our other years you know who have had on-campus time um, find it equally as challenging because they know what the didactic portion of class has been and the collegiality of seeing their classmates study groups some you know activities outside of school right we all know that that's important um to have activities outside of school Um, you know, for, you know, mental well-being or well-being in general, sports activities, etc. So I think it's been extremely challenging for the students and faculty. You know, we I'm excited to go to campus now the one time or two times a week that I go to campus for an OSCE. Normally, I I do not like coming in for OSCEs. um, And I was excited. I'm like, I'm going to see some of my colleagues. And so there's no doubt it's been it's been challenging.
0: And can you tell us what an OSCE stands for?
3: Yes, it is an, an objective structured um, clinical exam oh, ski. That's right. So it's um, essentially a lab exam. And um, when, when I went to school, graduate Montreal, oh, geez, and 16 years ago, we didn't have lab exams. And I'm sure it was probably the same for you too. You know, we just did our labs, you showed up and, you know, if, if you got to see the pigeon, like you said, or, or you know, got to do this procedure grades, um, now, um, most schools, I think, have moved to these exams where what they do in lab is testable through these tests, essentially these doing tests. So they have stations where they, they have to go and rotate and and, and do this to-do test. So it's, it's interesting. They're usually very high, you know, there's definitely a high level of anxiety because it's, you know, you're not in front of a, your piece of paper writing your test. You're in front of an instructor doing a skill. Um,
2: it sounds like the bell ringer pathology labs. Exactly. Did you have, have those as well? Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. That
2: brings bad memories, frankly. <laughs> but but you know, we we did them infrequently, right? So they were a major event instead of a, a more frequent event, which is what these sound like.
0: It's right. it's interesting because I have done both. So we it used to be that these these, these skills lab were. You had one teacher that was in the room with you and that teacher had you do a couple of things. And then you had one person that that same teacher evaluating you. Now it is more that there is a list of things that they need to check off. So Mm -hmm. it's all prepared. So a person needs to do a skill. But that skill has all been written down about what are the exact things that they need to do. And so you need to check off those things and that's how you get evaluated. So it's not, Mm -hmm. it's much more objective than it used to be. It used to be subjective. And if you had a teacher that hated you, okay you have no guarantee that he will pass you or he would ask you much more difficult questions than maybe a person that that person really liked. Now that's not possible anymore because you always have to ask the same question. So, and you can only stimulate them by saying anything else so it is really you You are not allowed as a, a teacher to guide people anymore it's all so much more structured and and i that's why it's called ob- objective and structured because there's no of course there's always a little bit of you know subjectivity in it but it's much more structured than it used to be
3: absolutely no you you nailed it that's exactly right and and that was also part of the revamping into these two-hour labs we had to really make sure that the objectives that we were you know, originally had, we're truly gonna be taught in those two-hour labs and we had to trim down or, or, or really solidify our objectives. And and honestly, I think it was a win-win-win for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. That's what these exams are. We have a set list, like Yoli said, of things that we are looking for. And the students have time to practice. They have a practice lab, but that, that is something else that they that's changed for them. They can't just show up to the practice lab now. They have to book time, book time within a cohort and you know and obviously follow COVID protocols so that, that's certainly changed for them
2: so you what what is your class size again remind me at calgary
3: and that is a new challenge we now have our first year class is now 50 students and um, our other classes are 30 so it's our wow. first 50 cohort yes. so still small but you know we're a small school yeah. and and so that was an additional challenge of how to break yeah. them up into these cohorts and, and so it's been a quadruple challenge for, uh, for our leadership and coordinators.
2: I, I wondered if that started this year because those are the um, Saskatchewan students, is that right? Or, yes, it's the Saskatchewan um, students that you have now, right?
3: Correct, Yep. Yeah. exactly. So, so yeah. yeah, now yeah. instead of 20 Cal, or, or Alberta students going to Saskatoon, uh, we now have that mandate to train those 20, so that brings us up to 50.
2: Yeah, so have, uh, how has the cohort system um, worked? And, and I ask a, a little bit out of personal curiosity because we have a four cohort system in my two hospitals and it's a daily headache, um, but of course it's different. I'm staffing a hospital, right? So if you know, somebody can't come to work, it's a major issue, but um, yep. I'm wondering how it works when, it, when it's a student uh, cohort.
3: For the cohorts for the labs, so year one to three, they're set um, from the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And so the students um, you know, we divide divide the class into three, which is uh, ends up being, you know, so about set for the first year, 17, 18 students per um, you know, cohort, which is one, I think we're allowed up to 25, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember, but the U of C has put out some you know guidelines as well. So we're below the cohort with instructors being part of that cohort as well. Um, and then the other z- years, it's easier because they're smaller class sizes, but mm. they, they do um, from what I understand everything together. So they do their clinical skills. They do their anatomy labs, physiology labs, etc., all in that same cohort. Mm. Um, when it comes to fourth year, our rotations um, yeah. students um, aren't in set cohorts, but what, what we, that was another major change. Oh, so yeah. instead of a typical year, we have mandatory four-week rotations and two-week elective rotations spread out throughout the year. What they have done is made mandatory six-week rotations. And through AVMA guidelines, if we don't stop giving rotations, which thankfully we haven't, the students will actually be done all their mandatory rotations by February. And so that gives us some breathing room in case we do have to stop and start now they have six weeks of rotations those students who are on that same six week block are in the in a cohort together mm-hmm. then they get a two-week block of online teaching or break which is essentially a sort of um isolation period mm-hmm. um and then once they're done that and during that isolation period it's expected that they don't you know travel or, or do anything and, and essentially isolate and then they start another six-week rotation so mm-hmm. that that's been a very interesting change as well. I
0: bet yeah. it is, I bet it is, and, and, and sorry to break up, but uh, you know, we are at time and we have so many more questions to ask. So we're very excited that you'll be back next week uh, because I wanna ask, and this is the cliffhanger then for the next time is, so what happens when a student uh, is diagnosed with COVID or gets sick and then misses part of its cohort? Because obviously everything is so well-organized, you have but you probably have an answer for that too so that's next week uh dr susan
2: yes so i get to start and end today this is yes. a it's a big day i'm gonna put a little star on my calendar i get I know. A,
0: a little crown
2: i know a little crown well thank you yola <laughs> I get to thank all of you for listening and uh, be sure to check out our website, which is perpodcast.net. You can see all of our great guests like Dr. Shaloub and you can uh, see his earlier episodes with us, which I think were on uh, chronic kidney disease, if I remember correctly. Yep. And all of our other great guests, you can listen online via our website, but you can also listen in uh, any app that you use to listen to music or podcasts. And on social media, we are at perpodcast. And I'm thank definitely so going
0: to ask something about uh, the latest news in chronic kidney disease too, at the oh. end of the next podcast because we cannot not
3: talk about it at all. Okay. <laughs> so, but oh, thank Serge, you. thank you.
2: Two cliffhangers for next thank time. Thank you so
3: much. Very much appreciate being here. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Sounds good. Dr. Susan Little is a feline
1: medicine specialist with two cat only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine, along with three cats. She also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kerpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons, and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hill's Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep eating that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screw stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast.